Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. Emily Conrad is my guest coming up. She has studied America's Electoral College in depth, and what she has to say is timely, eye-opening, and raises serious questions as we head into the 2020 presidential election. I think that we need to really have a discussion about what this institution is. Because if we don't, then basically that that narrative, is it good or is it bad, will just continue to perpetuate. And people really will not understand what is the system that we have. And it could be manipulated at some point in time. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political, and social upheaval Life on Planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. Emily Conrad has a new book, Faithless, the untold story of the Electoral College. It is a penetrating read into a topic that was suddenly on the political radar after the outcome of the 2016 election when 10 members of the Electoral College voted or attempted to vote for a candidate different from the candidates they were pledged and seven of those votes were validated. It stunned many in political circles and stirred lots of trouble. And many of the electors who I spoke with did receive a substantial amount of death threats in 2016. You'll be hearing more from Emily Conrad in my interview with her coming up. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. And there's possibility for bad faith foreign or domestic actors to try to manipulate the Electoral College. Sure, look, it's grand to have you back for another episode. I asked what kind of family she wanted. She said... A family like yours. Learn more about adopting a teen at adoptuskids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt US Kids, and the Ad Council. Emily Conrad picked a significant yet sometimes a little known topic among the public in her full court treatment of the U.S. Electoral College. It's all in her new book, Faithless, The Untold Story of the Electoral College. I asked Emily to tell us what exactly is the Electoral College. The Electoral College is a very underreported topic. Uh, at least I believe that, that that to be the case. It comes out every four years and everybody talks about the Electoral College and Really, the, the dialogue and the debate becomes, oh, are you for the Electoral College or against the Electoral College? However, there's not that much cognizance of what exactly is the Electoral College. How does it work? How do people become electors? What are the roles and the rights and the responsibilities of electors whenever after the November election? So in this book, I interviewed eight faithless electors from 2016. A faithless elector is somebody who is pledged to vote for the state's uh, popular vote, and the people uh, decided not to do that. In 2016, you had faithless electors on both sides of the aisle. You had Republicans who decided not to vote for Trump, and you had Democrats who decided not to vote for Hillary Clinton. I decided to interview eight of them, and uh, they shared with me their story, how they became electors, 
and eventually why they decided not to vote for their their uh, party's chosen candidate. Uh, we we'll talk about how you gained access to these electors. Uh, that in itself is fascinating. But just to get some of the basics straight, there are two components to the presidential election process. There's the popular vote, the number of votes cast across the U.S., and then more arguably important, the electoral vote. And there are what? A total of 538 electoral votes with a majority of 270 needed to win the election. And then it's over to the electors in each state. What happens then? So uh, about a month after the November election, electors meet in their respective state capitals and they officially vote. And at this point in time, then the results are then sent to uh, Washington, D.C., and then they're read out loud on the inauguration day. What happens at the Electoral College vote, arguably you can say that the popular vote in November is just, I mean, technically people, when they go out to vote, they think they're voting for the president. They're actually voting for electors to vote on their behalf for president. And that is what is exactly what is enshrined in the Constitution. Uh, the electors are the ones who end up selecting the president. That you think about it, uh, when many people go to vote in November, many times they, the electors' names are not even on the ballot. People think they're voting for president. In reality, they're voting for an elector who supposedly has pledged to vote for the chosen candidate. Okay, so let's look at 2016. And that, that was a tumultuous election on many levels. Two very strong, passionate candidates who brought out the passions in the American people, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And the country was then certainly at a turning point. It's at a turning point today. Momentous change was in the air. Everything was up for grabs from our religious liberties, economic sovereignty, and many of our cherished fundamental and civil rights. 2016 produced a record number of faithless electors. There was nothing like this in recent history. We had the most faithless electors in modern history in the last election cycle. Before you might see one faithless elector here or one faithless elector there, this was the first time that you saw a large group of faithless electors. And what is very interesting is that this happened on both sides of the aisle. This happened in the Republican Party and also in the Democratic Party. And uh, it's true, whenever you were kind of framing your question, you said 2016, you had these two very strong candidates come out. I start my book actually before uh, Hillary was chosen as the Democratic uh, nominee and before Trump was chosen as the Republican nominee. One of the things that really I found very interesting as I interviewed these electors was that many of them were chosen to be electors before it was clear that Trump would be the nominee or Clinton would be the nominee. They were chosen in the midst of very robust primaries where you saw so many Republicans vying for uh, for the, the nomination. And you also saw the Democratic Party kind of divided between two very strong candidates. Uh, you had, you know, one side you had Clinton um, and then on the other side you had Bernie Sanders. So the story of these faithless electors actually doesn't start in, in November. It starts uh, before and really starting with these uh, with these primaries and the electors being chosen by um, to become electors and the electors are chosen and it's very difficult to say if, if you if you ask 
how are electors chosen? It's remarkably decentralized, and every state has a different way of selecting their electors. And even within a, within one state, two different parties may select their electors in two different ways. How did you gain access to these electors? Why did they agree to talk to you? Well, to be, well, actually, I mean, I just kind <laughs> of, I hate to say this, I don't want to sound like a stalker. I kind of stalked them on social media, and I reached out to them. And they this is one of the things is that electors do not have anonymity. And we saw that in 2016, their research has shown that almost 100%, 98, 99%, and probably it's 100% of, ele- of Republican electors were lobbied, were actively lobbied by groups and also by individuals to change their vote from Donald Trump to another candidate. The way that this came about is that their personal information, their social media, uh, their addresses, their work addresses, email addresses were started, they started to be posted up online. People said, okay, we need to, um, a lot of uh, progressive movements said we need to lobby these, these uh, Republican electors to switch their vote. And many of the Republican electors were completely bombarded by emails, boxes of mail being sent to their homes. The internet has made it so that we really don't live in an era of anonymity. So I was able to find most of these electors. And um, after a little bit of communication, uh, they agreed to share their story with me. And I have, um, and even before I published the book, I gave them the opportunity to review their chapters for inaccuracies. What kind of people are they? Are they politically affiliated, politically connected? Are they housewives, tradespeople, professionals? Where do they come from? The 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 electors that who I interviewed, and of course you have to realize these are electors that decided to vote faithlessly. So there is a little bit um, they do have that one similarity. I was interested because they are very, they're a very diverse group of individuals, both on the Republican side and also on the Democratic side. On the Republican side, I interviewed electors from Georgia and also from Texas. In that grouping, uh, you had a Hispanic, uh, very strong fundamentalist Christian. You had a political science professor and you had a former refugee from South Vietnam. I mean, this is a very diverse group. Um, then on the Democratic side, you, I, it, I interviewed two Hispanic millennials, two Native American activists, community college graduate who worked in technology, among others. And so whenever you start adding in the, the, these, these people are very interesting and they're quite diverse. A lot of people think that the Electoral College is made up of um, people who are politically connected, people who donate a lot of money. And there is a certain degree of that, but that is not the group that will likely vote faithlessly. And the Electoral College, whenever you start delving into it, you realize that it is actually made up of people who are just normal, everyday individuals. Um, A big part of that also depends on how they are selected. In some states, electors are chosen by their state party leadership. I venture to say that in those states, these people would be slightly more politically connected. This is kind of a gift that you give to the parties, uh, the party faithful. In other states, uh, electors are voted on within a caucus or within a convention. In those states, you have a lot more grassroots activists become electors. You spoke to David Mullenix of Hawaii. He was an elector. He had a fascinating story. He 
was faithless. He was on the Democratic side, correct? Yes. He gave his vote to Bernie Sanders. He did. And Tell us about that. Yes. So so David Mullinex has long been a progressive activist for a number of causes, starting from when he was a, a young he was a young man. Um, now, of course, he's quite a bit older. And one of the things that he really focused on whenever we, we were talking together was that he only joined the Democratic Party in order to get Bernie Sanders elected. And he was a, he was a strong campaigner for Bernie Sanders. So in his mind, whenever they had the Hawaii Democratic primary, 70% of Hawaii Democrats supported Bernie Sanders over Hillary Clinton. And, um, and then whenever you had the DNC, I think that David Mullinex was very upset by what he saw at the DNC. Actually, two of them, the electors who I interviewed were actually delegates to the DNC, Robert Satayakam and Michael Baca. And it's very interesting to compare and contrast their stories. But um, for many of the more progressives, especially of David Mullinex, when they saw um, what happened at the DNC, they began to perhaps lose a bit of faith in the Democratic Party. And whenever it was clear that Hillary Clinton was not going to win, um, at least David Mullinex said, well, this is the opportunity to really give all those Bernie supporters an electoral college vote, because in his mind, Bernie, the, the nomination had been stolen from Bernie Sanders to begin with. Now, only five candidates in U.S. history have won an election by losing the popular vote and winning or deadlocking the electoral vote. One of those elections was the Hillary and Trump dust-up. Tell us about that. It does tell you something about the last election, how passions were running so high that we had these seven rogue electors. You did have, as, as I mentioned, many of the Republican electors after, um, after the November election were actively lobbied to change their vote from Trump. And many of the arguments that were given was that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. And so electors should follow that. I feel like that was a bit of a flawed argument. Um, the rules of the Electoral College and both, both candidates were attempting to win the Electoral College are fairly clear. That being said, it did add to a lot of tensions in the air. And I think that the, the national popular vote argument is a driving force of why this is so important and why the Electoral College needs to be explored. That being said, at the same time, I feel like the national popular vote argument and saying, oh, the Electoral College versus the popular vote, it really um, simplifies an issue. Um, in my research, there are really gaping holes that exist in the Electoral College. Um, you have 538 individuals. Um, most people, before they, they vote for president, I mean, in November, they think they're voting for president. They don't realize they're actually voting for an elector. Most people have no idea how, in their, how their state's electors are even chosen, what their names are. Until we really have a public understanding of what the Electoral College is, of course, people, whenever you just see a, a candidate's name on the ballot and you don't realize that you're voting for an elector, of course, people are going to be upset after the fact if, if, they're, if they're not educated about what exactly the Electoral College is beforehand. Well, of course, that's what Democrats kept reminding us after the last election. Oh, Hillary won the election by the popular vote. It was stolen from her. And then, of course, they brought in Russian collusion and so on. But that's the way the system was designed by our founders. Yes, the Electoral College system was a system of compromises from the very beginning. And one of the things I always like to point out was that when the Electoral College was ideated, 
political parties did not yet exist. The role of electors, um, if you take a look, and of course, I'm no constitutional scholar, although my book does have background, um, have historical background and has a few different chapters of very important incidents in U.S. history that has shaped the nature of the Electoral College. One of the reasons why the Electoral College was um, was was started to begin with, you think about when the Constitution was enacted, there were limited methods of communication and transportation, and the founders were very concerned that voters would just vote for their their state's favored son because there was a lack of understanding of what other options existed out there in the country. And even in in the early days of the Electoral College, they stipulated electors had two electors college votes and one of them one of those votes must be for someone who lives outside of their state which is an interesting thing and it's still in uh, the Constitution today that's still a, that, that is still a rule so you had um, this was was a primary concern now as uh, parties began to become ingrained in American politics you began to see the electoral college change. Um, electors would actively campaign saying, I'm, go- I'm a Republican elector and I will vote for the Republican candidate or the Democratic candidate. Um, that was a slow process, but I would say by, by the Civil War, for sure, that had already been ingrained. Well, of course, if the Electoral College wasn't created, there was always the possibility and risk that the heavily populated coasts could basically take the election and there would be diminished representation in the vast middle and the across the plains and so on. And the way that that you're uh, that's that a state's number of electors is determined is if you if you live in a state, you just add the number of representatives your state has with the number of senators to and that's the number of uh, of electro of electors that you have for your state. So it is very much, uh, you know, just how you, we have the Senate and the House of Representatives with one based off of um, with one based off of population. This was the way to kind of create a, a system that would give weight to smaller states, while at the same time allowing larger states to also have a certain amount of representation. As we head into the 2020 election in November, a lot on media about that and a lot of excitement. And it strikes me as we're going to have a a record turnout. Are we likely to see the rise of even more faithless electors as passions run high on both the left and right? Now, there has been attempts to tamp down the ability of electors to go rogue, but how do you see it? I personally believe that we could see a larger number of faithless electors moving forward. Now, in May, we had two Supreme Court cases argued, and these Supreme Court cases were Chafello versus Washington and Colorado versus Baca. Chafello versus Washington is uh, one faithless elector out of Washington State, Brett Chafello. And a group of electors in Washington state decided to vote for Colin Powell rather than vote for Hillary Clinton. And they later had to pay a $1,000 fine. They were basically saying um, this fine is unconstitutional. And then in Colorado versus Baca, it's, uh, I also interview Michael Baca for my book. He was actually removed in the middle of the, his electoral vote. He attempted to vote for John Kasich for president. And he was immediately removed. Um, He claims that that was unconstitutional. Both of these cases were argued at the Supreme Court in May, and they were decided upon in July. 
Well, the Supreme Court decided in a unanimous decision, which a lot of people weren't necessarily expecting, was that state laws to bind electors are not unconstitutional. And at that point in time, you saw all of these articles coming out in the New York Times or these different these different news organizations saying the Electoral College is fixed. And this is just one, the, one of the first steps of many to having a, the national popular vote nationwide. That being said, when you take a look, the Supreme Court ruled that state laws to bind electors are not unconstitutional. Well, Many laws don't have any bind, and many states don't have binding elector laws. And that's a very important thing to realize going into 2020. Um, for example, Texas, where you had two faithless electors in 2016, the state legislature actually decided not to pass binding elector laws, um, saying that such laws would be unconstitutional. And so that's very important. And even in those states that do have binding elector laws, the cost of noncompliance is not necessarily substantial. Um, in many states, it just might be a simple fine. Um, it might not actually remove the elector, um, the faithless elector. Um, at the moment, the research that I have shows that only 14, 15 states actually have laws that can remove an elector in a faithless vote. So going into 2020, there is there is a possibility for more faithless electors. In theory, and it's possible that Trump or Biden, one or the other, could win the electoral college or vote. But then you could have these faithless electors going rogue and tipping the election in a different direction. Is that possible? Would we not then have some kind of a constitutional crisis? What you would have is um, you probably wouldn't have enough electors to uh, go one way or another unless the election was very, very close. Say in 2016, 37 Republican electors would have needed to not vote for Trump to deny him the majority of 270. Now, if that would have happened, um, it's not that Clinton would have won. What would have happened then is that you would have had a contingency election inside of the House of Representatives and which each state would be given one vote. And wow. then the president would be determined in that way. The last time we've had this happen is in 1824. And uh, Andrew Jackson won a plurality of the popular vote and a plurality of the electoral college vote. However, in the, in the contingency election, um, John Quincy Adams ended up on top. And then afterwards, you saw Andrew Jackson really say that the Electoral College was a bad thing. And he actively campaigned to get rid of it, saying, you know, I, uh, I won. I had more Electoral College votes and I had more popular vote. And John Quincy Adams still was able to win. Um, it, that is, um, that is a, an incident in history called the corrupt bargain. And I do discuss it act in my book. Well, a lot of the voting patterns and the Electoral College and uh, hanging chads of recent years sort of tells us the country is divided politically, almost down the middle. Yes. Um, but at, at the same time, and this is one of the, the topics that drew me to, um, to, to write this book, is that as I was consider as I first heard about the faithless electors, I began to think to myself, 
What is happening in American politics where you see both Republicans and Democrats willing to give up their entire political reputations for a faithless vote? What is going on with our, within our political, in, in such a time of, of polarization, that you're seeing people on both sides of the aisle doing something that's remarkably similar? I think what you're really seeing is a lack of confidence in, in both respective parties from a substantial group, from clearly a, a group that is substantial enough to be able to gain electors in the Electoral College. Kind of explains the rise of Bernie Sanders. And then you have Biden adopting a lot of his platform so that he can go out there with some kind of a mandate from the broader Democratic Party. But Trump seems to be a one-man show. Uh, in, in this election, um, and but you, you think back to 2016, which is the, the election that this book, that the entire action of this book is geared around. Um, the reasons why... Um, why the the electors who I spoke with were uh, disinterested in voting for for Donald Trump were were diverse. Um, you had a Ron Paul supporter who said, you know, um, and the Ron Paul the Liberty Movement is still very strong within the Republican Party today. Um, you had a very strong Christian who said that uh, Trump doesn't match with my personal beliefs. And then finally, you had more of an establishment Republican candidate who thought to himself, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, you know, the Republican Party is the party of Bush, Cruz, Rubio. I, um, I don't think I can vote for Donald Trump. You know, in 2016, you were also having this crisis. Looking ahead to 2020, I guess it just depends on wh who became electors in the in this cycle. And unfortunately, many people don't realize they haven't been paying attention. Um, the electors have already been chosen. Um, we just might not know their names yet. Now, you mentioned lobbying of electors last time around. There were suggestions that there could be attempts during the 2020 election to interfere with these electors by dodgy or foreign actors by subtle influences or intimidating them. Is that possible? It, it is possible. Um, and I, when I first wrote this book, I was actually personally concerned that that could have been the case in, in the last election. You had Republicans and Democrats do that. Um, after talking with all of the electors who I interviewed, I can say that each one of them thought that they were doing the best that they could for their country based off of this position of enormous power that they were given. I don't think that, that there was no blackmail and there was no uh, coercion. At the same time, you look ahead to 2020, there are only 538 electors. They can easily be targeted. They have easily been targeted in that mass lobbying campaign in 2016. And many of the electors who I spoke with did receive a substantial amount of death threats in 2016. Uh, really? Yes. Um, they should have security details, some of them. Then. Well, I mean, it, it's interesting. I mean, you think about it, <laughs> you know, one of them was, uh, I mean, m almost all of them received death threats of some of some sort or another. And several of them were, were afraid for their lives. At one wow. point in time, one of the electors was, um, and this is a Democratic elector, um, was followed home by uh, by a car, and he was so scared that he um, he went into a safe house and he sent his children into another safe house. These are stories that really haven't been told. But you think about it, a lot of the electors who who I who I, who I spoke with, I mean, these are these are everyday people. These could be your neighbors. These can be your teachers. These are the people that you go to and you go shopping in the grocery store with. And and I mean, they're just everyday individuals given this position of enormous 
enormous responsibility and power. And there's really not the public cognizance to protect them. Um, One of the people said, what would happen if I went to the local police? And this was another Democratic elector. He said, you know, I don't think that the local police even quite understand what the Electoral College is or that my, my life would be at risk. They would just think that maybe I'm kind of a crazy person. After a wee break, Emily Conrad will tell us more about those death threats. I'm probably okay to have one more drink before I drive home. I'm probably okay. I open the window to stay alert. Probably okay, I just popped some gum in my mouth. Step out of the car, please. I probably made a mistake. Probably okay isn't okay when it comes to drinking and driving. If you see a warning sign, stop and call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzzed driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. My guest is Emily Conrad, author of Faithless, the untold story of the Electoral College. And we'll pick up from where Emily is revealing details of death threats to electors. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. I asked her to give me some more details. Why were they being threatened? They're just doing their democratic duty. Well, just as, uh, you know, tensions were running high and um, and there are many people who believe that, that Hillary Clinton should have won based off of the national popular vote. When you had Republicans say you had lots of people say, vote for this guy or else. Um, then when you had uh, some of the Republicans who considered a faithless vote against Trump, they also received death threats on the right side. So, I mean, there, there were death threats coming from, I think, the left and the right. Um, when you had Democrat electors saying that they were not going to vote for, for Clinton, they also received death threats. It makes it very difficult to say, oh, this is, this is the group that was threatening. I mean, they were receiving mm-hmm. threats from, from, every, from every single angle. Have we a new slate of electors this time around? Yes, um, but that well, actually, it's it's very difficult to say. This is the thing why why the electoral college is such a difficult topic is that basically every single state chooses their electors differently. In some states, you see the electors kind of reappear year after year after year, having because they win the same sort of uh, they 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 get their elector position maybe through a state party committee or that sort of thing. And they come back year after year. In other states, you have a new slate of electors come out every, you know, every four years, or you might have one or two that that come back. Every state is different. And if anything, if if people are interested in this topic, I do encourage them to to read this book and to really join in this debate and join in the dialogue. I think that transparency is key here. We need to understand and people need to understand, how are your electors chosen? Have you had the same elector for the last 20 years? Um, maybe in your state you have. Uh, and I think that, that this is an important topic that people need to explore. Um, because it's so decentralized in 50 states and the District of Columbia, it, it really is also going to re- require, I think, uh, local media and local activists and local people who are interested locally to look into this issue. Do they get paid for this job? They do not get paid, um, most, but however, most elect, most I think many states provide a travel stipend because they do have to go to the state capitol on that one day to cast their vote. So um, they do receive a travel, many do receive a travel stipend, but nothing else other than that. So they go to the state capitol, do they go into a voting booth or 
fill out a form? Is it done electronically? They they fill out a form. Um, the normally there is a ceremony, and people will fill out their forms. And most of them do have closed ballots. Um, I think all of them have closed ballots, and then people, if there's a faithless vote, people decide to own up to it after the fact. That being yeah. said, in 2004, there was a very interesting incident in Minnesota where uh, John Edwards' name was written down for both the president and the vice president. Instead, somebody wrote down John Edwards twice instead of John Kerry for president. What ended up happening after that was that nobody owned up to that vote. <laughs> so uh, we don't know who was the faithless elector in that case. Are they sort of anonymous figures? I mean, you brought them to life and you identified them. Amazing job. Well done. But do they give interviews after they cast a vote or before? Do they talk to the media? Are they kind of mini celebrities in their local communities? Uh, It depends upon the elector, to be honest. And you had some electors who utilized this uh, before the fact to say, you know, I'm unhappy with my party. And I'm going to vote faithlessly. And this is why Um, kind of using it in more of an activist sort of role. And then you also had electors who said, well, I know my rights and responsibilities as an elector. The Constitution says I can vote for whomever I want and I will just do my vote. And um, and that's that. Uh, That was the case for Bill Green, one of the electors out of Texas who voted for Ron Paul. He uh, he didn't tell anybody he was going to vote faithlessly before. And then he voted faithlessly. And then after that, he went on vacation, didn't take (laughs) didn't take any interviews or anything. Um, I ended up getting in contact with him after the fact, and he was very happy to share his story. But he said that he just wanted to just kind of remove himself from that media, I guess, that media, uh, the media craziness. I'm sure some of them take a lot of criticism for their decision and a lot of flack from party faithful for being faithless oh for sure um and it's it's very interesting i um i wasn't that aware of the faithless electors when when it was happening and it was only after the fact that i began to listen to news media about the faithless electors i they were being criticized by party faithful as well as by um, by major news outlets on both sides. So I thought that was extremely interesting um, looking ahead. And I wondered what was it that they were willing to risk their political reputation for this faithless vote? Many of them were willing to do that because they believed what they were doing was the best for the country. And there's really not much prescription against it. Now the Supreme Court has said that state laws to bind electors are not unconstitutional. So in those states that have binding elector laws, then Yes, it is illegal. Um, but in states where there is no such law, this is completely allowed by the Constitution. Well, we just have to wait and see. You might have another book after this election. I, I, I truly might. And I would be very honored if people were to share their stories of faithless, of their, their elector story with me. Um, there were many narratives that I thought uh, could eventually arise that, unfortunately, I was, um, that I was unable to, to kind of uncover and if you have any listeners who are electors in 2016 and that would love to share their st- that would be interested in sharing their story, I would love to hear it, uh, to be honest. Um, you had a lot of Republican electors who were, um, of course, lobbied to change their vote and then decided not to. Um, and I even heard in one case, I think it was an I, I heard overheard a um, an interview from an elector, a female uh, elector from Tennessee. And she said that she was even offered money not to vote for Donald Trump. 
Now, I don't know what that meant, but I'm very interested if people have an Electra story to share, I would love to hear it. Well, we can give out all your contact information at the end of this show. Any other subtle hints or insights about this coming election and potential faithless electors? Well, I do think that um, that many of the issues that were facing both part that both parties faced in 2016 were not necessarily fully addressed. I think that Democrat, the Democratic Party may have faithless electors, uh, particularly from the Bernie Sanders group. And the Republican Party may also have faithless electors, especially from perhaps those who kind of more of the party establishment before Donald Trump became president. And I think that the coronavirus has made it perhaps slightly more complicated. And the fact that when you had these conventions and caucuses, that is normally when an elector was chosen. I'm not sure how that that worked this time around. And so looking ahead, you know, I, I if I were to say if I were to make uh, any sort of predictions, I think that this election, of course, might be dragged out. Um, and I think that faithless electors may become uh, an incre- uh, another factor in the equation that a lot of people are not considering. There's varying opinions about the outcome of this election. It could go anyways, of course, but it could be very close. It could drag out for days. I just heard this morning on radio an analyst suggesting it could hinge on the Hispanic vote. COVID-19 plays into it, obviously. The passions that run deep in the Democratic side could get expressed in various ways. And then there is a, a very strong vote out there for Donald Trump as well. But the last election was only won by a small number of votes in a bunch of swing states. Yes. That is the case. When people don't understand the Electoral College, um, they immediately, when they see that, they immediately start thinking, well, why do we even have this? Then the debate becomes, should we have it? Should we not have it? And one of the things that I feel is very important, um, one of the reasons I I wrote this book is that you take that debate aside. We need to understand what is the system that we have. You know, we talked about electors being threatened. Um, There's possibility for you know, bad faith foreign or domestic actors to try to manipulate the Electoral College. I think that we need to really have a discussion about what this institution is. Because if we don't, then basically that that narrative, is it good or is it bad, will just continue to perpetuate. And people really will not understand what is the system that we have. And it can I think that it could be it could be manipulated at some point in time. Um and you saw kind of in 2016, perhaps this was the just kind of a signal of what could be to come. So are you saying, Emily, that there should be some slight tweaking of the Electoral College or it should be reformed or protected or you're not saying get rid of it? I'm saying that we need to look at it. Um, it it's, it's one of these things that when people take a look at the Electoral College, they think, oh, I like it, I don't like it. Well, that that's just such a simple that <laughs> that's such a simplistic way of looking at what we have, and and then people say, oh well, the founders wanted this, the founders wanted that. At the same time, people don't, aren't aren't paying attention. When are electors chosen? Are they chosen during the primary? Are they chosen during the the general election when the the party's nominee are, are, is already obvious? Um, how are electors chosen in several states? Um, for example, you have a you know, you asked who are the electors. In many states, they are chosen directly by state party leadership. Um, this is the way that Bill Clinton was an elector in the last election. 
This is also a way that Christine Pelosi was an elector in the last election. And so you do start to see where where people are kind of, where the electoral college can become kind of an institution of party establishment very, very easily. And I think that most people actually kind of assume it is. And that was mm. interesting to me. Um, if you start asking about the electoral college, people don't realize that it, that the electoral college could actually be made up of normal people. I guess a lot of people's notions of the Electoral College until recently, for sure, until maybe your book came out in some people's minds, was it rubber stamping the democratic will of the people? Really, that was it. If, you know, to do otherwise was not thinkable. Yes. And and I really loved talking with every single elector I interviewed in this book and hearing their life stories and why they why they decided to make this decision. I they came from all different corners of the country. They were belonged to different socioeconomic and ethnic backgrounds. For me, it kind of you know, I went into this assuming that electors would be a part of that perhaps party elite. And it reaffirmed in some sort of way my faith in democracy that you had all of these people who were able and who who participate in such a vital way in our democracy and to our electoral process. At the same time, it is problematic whenever whenever you have 538 individuals and you don't know who they are. I mean, we know our representatives and our senators before we vote for, before we vote for them. And in many cases, these electors' names are not even on the ballot. The Faithless, the Untold Story of the Electoral College is the name of your new book. That's available anywhere to sell good books or just go online, Amazon. Tell us a bit more about yourself. I'm originally from South Carolina, and I did my undergraduate in South Carolina in at Wofford College. Um, after that, I worked in textile machinery for a couple of years, and I moved to uh, Beijing, China to do my master's degree in international relations at Peking University. Um, after that, I, I spent about two years as a reporter writing uh, different human interest stories about China. I got married over there. And and since COVID has hit, you know, things have become a little bit more difficult. My husband and I have been separated with uh, visa suspensions and whatnot. But I also am very grateful because it has given me the opportunity to, to write this book. I mean, I wrote this book in quarantine in Japan. Okay. <laughs> so um, I, I'm very grateful for that opportunity to write this book and then of course to be able to get it out there because for me this is one of the most important topics in our, our electoral process and people are kind of it, mainstream media likes to kind of I think kind of sweep it under the rug without really discussing what we have and what and what are the challenges moving forward well you've really done your research finally do you care to handicap or take odds on the outcome of the 2020 presidential election any sense of where it's going honestly speaking with faithless electors in the mix i i i just know that i just believe that that faithless electors will be a factor in that equation I don't know how great of a factor, but I do believe moving forward to 2020, they will be. So there could be some sensational headlines out of these communities where we have faithless electors. Yes, we could see some sensationalistic headlines. and But more importantly, and this is really what it will come down to, is that you're going to have electors who are going to be absolutely bombarded. They're going to be getting probably death threats, just like in 2016. They probably when they were chosen as an elector, they didn't realize the rights and responsibilities and the dangers that come with becoming an elector. And they're going to become, after November, arguably the most powerful people in the world. 
it's amazing other than yourself and perhaps a handful of others haven't given this uh, these electors any attention their lives are being threatened by the time her passions are running high you wonder will that change I, I hope so and I hope that um, that it doesn't become necessarily a partisan or polarized topic because electors on both sides I, I think need a certain level of, uh, of understanding and protection um, you did see some reporting in 2016 uh, Kyle Cheney of Politico did quite a good bit of work on that that being said it becomes very quickly um, the this issue of faithless electors I think it's hijacked into uh, an electoral college versus popular vote debate and while I understand that's an easy way to frame it especially for mainstream media where attentions are perceived to be very short these electors, they will be grappling with some big issues. And they will, I think that understanding what the Electoral College is, is, is quite important just for any politically interested American. Well, one thing for sure, it's adding a colorful, fascinating, interesting element to this election and to the last election. And we're going to stay close to it. Maybe we'll be bringing you back on again, Emily, after the election to talk about more Faithless Electors. The name of your book is The Faithless, The Untold Story of the Electoral College. A great work. Congratulations. We'll talk again soon. Thank you very much. You can order Emily Conrad's new book, Faithless, The Untold Story of the Electoral College, in many places online and from her own website, emilyconrad.com. That's emilyconrad.com. Emily's up on Facebook at the Faithless Book, at the Faithless Book, F-A-I-T-H-L-E-S-S-B-O-O-K. And she's on Twitter at Emily C. Conrad. You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973 664 9460 in the US or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973 664 9460 in the US or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973 664 9460 in the US or email burndesk at gmail.com.